You can go ahead and open your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 3, and we are going to finish this letter this evening. Jonathan Edwards is a famous name in Christian history. He's one of the brightest American minds this country has ever produced. If you've read some church history, you've heard his name associated with the Great Awakening in the 1700s. He was one of the leading preachers in that time period. He's an author, wrote many, many books, such as Religious Affections, which I highly recommend to every Christian to read before they get to heaven. The End for Which God Created the World, The Life of David Brainerd, Freedom of the Will, and many others, sermons and treatises and books. He was a missionary in Stockbridge on the East Coast, and he was also the president of Princeton University. So as you look at his life, it was a very accomplished life, a productive life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But at 18 years of age, all that was in his future. When he arrived in New York City as an 18-year-old to be a pastor, he was to take on a church that had recently split. And so he was trying to figure out exactly what to do with his life. He started Yale as a 12-year-old, being proficient in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. He graduated at 17 years of age as a valedictorian in his class at Princeton University. His father, his grandfather, many of his uncles were ministers. And so at 18 years of age, going on 19, he found himself at this Presbyterian church in New York City. It was a season of his life when he was away from his family, a recent college graduate. And on the basis of his intellect and his education, the world was at his feet. He could do whatever he wanted to. But he was looking for God's will and God's direction in his life. And so he decided to sit down and write some resolutions as a way to keep his life focused for however long God would give him. And he wrote a statement, Oh God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. He wrote 70 resolutions, hoping that they would keep him focused on eternity. Whatever decisions he would make every single day, that these resolutions would help him stay focused on what matters most. So number six reads as follows. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Resolution number seven reads, Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Number 17, resolved that I would live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Number 22, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence I'm capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Number 52, resolved that I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again, resolved that I would live just so as I can, I wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. And number 55, resolved to endeavor to my utmost to act as I can think I should if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. 
And the way Jonathan Edwards would keep his life focused on these resolutions and focused on eternity is with a simple statement that he put before all of the resolutions. Remember to read over these resolutions once a week. Even Jonathan Edwards, one of the brightest minds this nation has ever produced, needed to be reminded. He needed to remember certain truths. Chapter 3 starts with exactly these words to Christians. Peter says, this is now, my beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you would remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. We saw in chapter 1 in verses 12 to 15 that Peter had told them, I'm here to remind you of certain truths. And now as he closes this letter, he goes back to that promise and says, I'm going to keep reminding you that you would remember these truths that are found in verse 2 in the holy prophets and in the commandment of the Lord and Savior that were spoken to you by your apostles. Peter knows that we need to be reminded as Jonathan Edwards was, as the people that he was writing to who were fleeing Rome because of persecution, heading to modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor in the first century, looking for stability and safety and security. And he told them, you need to be reminded of certain truths, specifically in this book, that all of us are to pursue godliness, that we are to live a life of holiness and sanctification and righteousness Because in verse 3 of chapter 1, God has given us everything that we need to live the godly life. Because of that promise, in verse 5, he says, Therefore you apply all diligence in pursuit of this life of godliness. So God gave us everything we need. That's the promise. And now we are to apply all diligence as we pursue and then demonstrate this life of godliness through the seven virtues that we saw in the middle of chapter 1. But he then says in chapter 2 that there are certain individuals who aim to distract you from this pursuit, who seduce you and lie to you, offering things they cannot deliver. These are false prophets, deceivers, and they will end up under judgment. That was chapter 2. In chapter 3, he now returns to the believer. And so he uses the word beloved in verse 1. He'll use the verse beloved four more times in this chapter. Because his main focus now goes back to the Christian, away from false teachers and deceivers, back to the believer. And he says, I'm here to stir you up, to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. That idea being you have sincerity in your faith. And I want to make sure that you remember that, that you have confessed to being a believer a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to remind you of these things and what does that come with and what is expected of that confession. There's only one other passage in the New Testament where the same terminology is used. And that's in Philippians 1.10 where Paul says, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. So Peter and Paul in Philippians 1 and 2 Peter 3 are using the same terminology of sincerity in the context of the coming of Jesus Christ. That we are to live lives of sincerity not hypocrisy, as we anticipate the return of Jesus Christ. And so in this chapter, Peter 
takes us back to this main focus. And he says, the way you will remember these things is by focusing on Scripture. That's verse 2. You need to remember the words spoken by holy prophets, which goes, takes us back to the end of chapter 1. He talked about true prophets receiving Scripture from God, being, that Scripture being inspired. That's at the end of chapter 1. So that terminology takes us back to that passage. And it's what the apostles have communicated to you as a commandment of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But also back in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, if you just flip over to the left a few pages, you'll notice Peter talking about the apostles at the beginning of his first letter. Talking about the prophets of old and the impact they make on our faith today. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, this is what we read. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now we have announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So he's referring to the Old Testament prophets who were writing scriptures, anticipating the coming of the Messiah, not knowing his name, not knowing the timing of his coming. But they were searching the scriptures carefully, and in doing so, they were benefiting us, later generations of Christians. And because of this, verse 13 says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So now he takes us to the future. Because of the scripture that you have, you need to live a certain kind of life anticipating the revelation of Jesus Christ. What kind of life? Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter began his first letter with the same idea. The scriptures that we have in front of us are intended to prompt us toward a life of holiness as we anticipate the return of Jesus Christ. Then in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, this is how the scriptures came about. They are inspired. The entire trinity is involved in the authorship of Scripture. That's the end of chapter 1. And now he takes us in chapter 3, reminding us that this is what we are to remember. The commandment of the Lord and the writings of holy prophets. This is why we spend so much time preaching in this church. This is why we have such long sermons. Because we believe this is important to our life. And I promise you, this is going to be another long sermon. And I think I'm trying to make up from old sins. The first time I preached here, years ago, I went a little short. If you were here, you know I, was, I went short. It was the first, January, first Sunday of January, Sunday night, and I felt like it's the holiday season. Who wants to go to 7.30? Everybody wants to go home early. So I preached a little short. The next Sunday, Pastor John told me in the prayer room, he said, Mark, if you're going to preach in this pulpit, you will always go the full time. And so I've been trying to go longer every time I preach here, just to go back and undo those sins. Relax. I will not let you out early today. Peter says, in our Christian lives, the prophets, the commandments are important in the way we will pursue 
godliness. And as he wraps up this book, he will now focus on specific promises that are given to those who are ungodly and those who are godly. And there's four of those in this chapter. And in verses 3 through 7, we have the first promise, and this promise is given to the ungodly. And the promise is that there is punishment from the Lord awaiting the ungodly. The promise for the ungodly is that there is punishment awaiting them. And so Peter writes in verse 3, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, we're going back to scripture, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. There's that first promise. That while they claim that everything continues as it always has been, there is no judgment. Yes, Christians keep promising judgment, but there is no judgment that we can identify these false teachers mock Scripture. And so Peter says, well, they say this has taken place since the fathers passed away. That takes us into the middle of Genesis, Genesis 26, Genesis 28, uh, Genesis 35, and Genesis 49. Those passages. But Peter says, remember, by the word of God, that's an illusion, and God said. Going back to Genesis 1, and God said, and God said, and God said. That's an illusion with that phrase, back to the beginning of creation, where he said, God created the heavens and the earth. He formed them out of water by water. But then he also destroyed them, in verse 6, with water. You see, these mockers were deists. They admitted that God created the world and all, all that we know in the universe, but then they advocated that he stepped back and just let it go. Everything is continuing as it has been. Therefore, there is no judgment coming. That's their claim. But Peter says, no, if you think about it, actually, God did destroy the world, and he takes us back to the beginning of creation. So in verse 4, they go back to the death of the fathers. In verse 5, he goes back to Genesis 1, and then Genesis 6. And he says that God is anticipating the judgment and destruction of ungodly men. You see, verses 5 and 6 is in direct contradiction to chapter 2, verse 5. In chapter 2, verse 5, we saw this last week where he talked about God did not sparing the ancient world and flooded it upon the ungodly. So they make claims that are completely contradictory to history and what's recorded in chapter 2. And Peter says there's more judgment coming. There are multiple places in the Old Testament and in the New Testament where there's prophecy about the future judgment of this world and the ungodly. When we went through the minor prophets, you remember the, the phrase, the day of the Lord. It appears here at the end of this chapter as well. This is one of the reasons we decided to focus on Second Peter. There's a pairing to the minor prophets. It's a day prophesied, the coming day of the Lord, the judgment that will fall on this world and all the ungodly. Isaiah 66 says, For behold, the day will come in fire, 
and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Malachi chapter four, verse one says, behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff and the day that is coming will, be, will set them ablaze. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, Paul writes, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And three times in this chapter, verse 7, verse 10, verse 12, Peter affirms the same truth, that there is judgment coming. In verse 10, he says, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burnt up. In verse 12, he says, the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. So Peter says, yes, there was the first destruction as a preview of the future and coming destruction. So when they mock and lie to you, do not believe them. There was judgment and there is more judgment coming. But go back to the beginning of chapter 3, where he says in verse 7, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment. The sun keeps rising. The earth keeps rotating. The moon and the stars keep shining. The galaxies with its billion stars keep functioning. The black holes that we know in the universe keep operating so that one day Jesus can burn it all. That's what he says. Everything is being kept by his word to destroy it. Earlier this year, scientists found the black hole in the Milky Way galaxy. Finally, they found it. It bends light all around it. The gas whip all around the hole. It's a thousand times smaller than the other black hole that's famous, M87. So it's a lot smaller than what the scientists have been used to studying. It, in the Milky Way, it is four million times bigger than our sun. And you know how long it took the scientists to get to it? Five years, a hundred million hours of supercomputer time invested just to take a picture of it. We have no idea how massive this universe is. Five years to take one picture. And God says through, this, through Peter, Jesus is preserving it to destroy it, to burn it. And what we see happening in Romans 8.21 is this future judgment, this destruction is in response to man's sin. Romans 8.21 says, Creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. This morning, Pastor John preached and he talked to us about Genesis 3. The curse on this planet because of Adam and Eve's sin. And ever since that day in Genesis 3, creation is groaning according to Romans 8, waiting to be set free from this curse. For thousands of years, creation has been in pain. But remember this, 
God did not curse creation after Genesis 6-5, which says, The wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Massive wickedness. Everything that people were preoccupied with was sin, more sin, more sin, more wickedness. Creation wasn't cursed after Genesis 6-5. Creation was cursed after the very first sin was committed. That should sober us up about the weightiness of sin. How evil and wicked it is. That after one act of sin, God cursed the entire creation. And because of what happened in Genesis 3, Jesus is waiting to burn it all. Destroy it all. Heavens and earth, verse 7, are being reserved for fire. In the first century, in the Jewish writings, there was an understanding that God has two treasuries. A positive treasury, which is where the heavens dispense rain and fertility. And then there's a negative treasury, where evil is being stored by God for the day of wrath. You can read that in the Jewish philosopher Philo, for example, in the first century. That's the terminology Peter uses. It is being reserved like a treasury. A treasury is what you protect, isn't it? You value it. God is protecting this creation that has been cursed to judge it, to destroy it because of man's sin. It's being kept for the day of judgment. Kept appears, that term in the middle of verse 7, Kept for the day of judgment. That term appears in chapter 2, verse 4, in chapter 2, verse 9, in chapter 2, verse 17. And here, always in the context of the evil being kept for the day of judgment. Peter uses that word only in that context in Second Peter. Judgment is coming, and the ungodly in this universe is being kept, protected for that moment. But in First Peter chapter 1, verse 4... He uses the same word in this context. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, to obtain an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled, it will not fade away, kept in heaven for you. So God is either keeping judgment for you, or God is keeping his inheritance for you. That's what Peter's trying to communicate to us. The ungodly will receive God's judgment that is being protected for them. And nothing will interfere with God judging the ungodly. But for the godly, he's protecting and keeping this inheritance that's undefiled, imperishable. It's tailor-made specifically for you. Your name is on it. And nobody will mess with it. Nobody will interfere with it. That is how Peter is trying to encourage us towards godliness. Because the ungodly, in verse 7, will endure judgment, whereas the godly will experience the blessing from God. So the first promise that Peter gives us is that God will punish the ungodly. And that should prompt us towards a life of godliness. But secondly, he says, in verses 8 through 9, and then repeats it in verse 15, is that God is patient. So the punishment from the Lord 
goes unto the ungodly. Patience from the Lord goes to the godly. Verse 8 reads, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. Again, referring to Christians. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In verse 15, he starts, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Peter often quotes scripture in both of his letters. And in this case, in verse 8, speaking about the Lord's day being like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day, takes us back to the very first psalm that was ever written in human history, Psalm 90. It was written by Moses, and it's a psalm that focuses on God's judgment on man's sin. It focuses on God's eternality, and it focuses on man's transient nature. And in verse 4, we read, A thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. So Peter leans on this verse and brings it into his argument to say, with God, timing is different. Do not impose your timeline into God's system. In verse 2, he says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In verse 5, he says about humans, you have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep in the morning. They're like grass which sprouts anew. In other words, they're transitory. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and it withers away. Verse 9 says, All our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. Verse 11, Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So he says, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And we are transitory. We're like grass that flourishes and then dies. And our years are few and they're characterized by difficulty and trials and judgment because of our sin and labor, verse 10, and sorrow. So verse 12, so teach us to number our days so we present to you a heart of wisdom. And then verse 14, he says, let your work appear to your servant and your majesty to your children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. So you can imagine Moses writing as he's the leader of Israel, bringing them into the promised land, never seeing it himself because of his own sin. Evaluating humanity in the contrast with God's eternality. And it says, this is life. It's filled with sorrow, with labor, with pain, with judgment from God. There's no way to compare our existence with your existence, a thousand to one, one to a thousand. But I pray that you would teach us to number our days so our life would be a life of wisdom. And then he prays, confirm for us the work of our hands. In other words, we will labor. We will have to fulfill Genesis 3. By the sweat of your brow, the man will gain food. Confirm the work of our hands. So Peter, taking that entire context of judgment and the infinite nature of God, the everlasting nature of God, eternality of God, and he says, when we begin to think about God's judgment, don't fall for the trap of the ungodly, the mockers. Just because it hasn't happened yet, it doesn't mean it will never happen. Because with God, timing is different. 
You cannot impose your system onto God's timeline. One commentator said it this way, if God does not reckon or indeed experience time as we do, then it follows that he is not slow about keeping his promise. That's verse 9. He's not slow about keeping his promise. I think oftentimes we have a problem with God's timing. He doesn't answer our prayers promptly. He doesn't get us out of the trial promptly. He's always slow, right? And we keep praying against those delays. Because we are not operating according to God's timeline. But Peter says God is never late. God is never slow. God is always on time because for him time is different. In Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 3, it says, The vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal. It will not fail. Though it tarries, the vision of judgment, wait for it. It will certainly come to pass. It will not delay. So now in Habakkuk, in the Minor Prophets, there's the same question. Where is the judgment? Why is it delaying? And Habakkuk says, similar to what Peter says, it will happen. It will not fail. There's a delay. Wait for it. It will happen. And how should we take this language of a thousand years? Well, it's symbolic. In Psalm 50, verse 10, it says, Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. It doesn't mean that God only owns a cattle on a thousand hills and then the 1,001 belongs to somebody else. No, it just means that there's a symbolism here that I own it all. So we should not read too much into this specific number in verse 8. But we have to ask the question, well, if God's judgment will happen, and there's promises of that judgment, and I just read Habakkuk 2.3, it will not delay, it will not tarry, it will take place. How do we explain the delay? How do we explain the promises of God's judgment on all the wicked? In Deuteronomy 7.10, it says this, God repays those who hate him to their faces, to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. How do we explain Psalm 86, verse 15? You, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. So God will judge. He will destroy those who hate him. And yet God is patient. God is kind. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God desires all to be saved. 2 Peter 3.9, he doesn't wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. How do we reconcile all of these passages that seem to contradict each other? Well, first we have to note that John 6 makes it very clear that God is in control of salvation, forgiveness, and ultimately judgment. In 6.37 of John, it says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So in other words, God has a number that he has fixed that will come to Christ, and he will receive them. And then in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in your prophets, They shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So salvation is of the Lord. It's sovereignly predetermined by God. Jesus says, no one who comes to me unless the Father draws him. And that individual, I guarantee to raise him up on the last day. So now there's more 
oversight over the process of salvation by Christ himself. And there's many other passages in the New Testament specifically talking about that God predestines, he elects people for salvation. So as we think about this promise, the judgment is certain. It will not be delayed in any way. And yet God is delaying. How do we explain all this? Well, look at verse 9 more carefully. The Lord is not slow about his promise. As some count slowness, that's the reference to the mockers, but is patient toward you. Now, who is the you? Well, who is he addressing in verse 8? Beloved. He's addressing the beloved in verse 1. So the you has to be subordinate to the beloved. So God's patience here is extended to the beloved, those who are the elect. So the way we understand verse 9 is that God is patient toward you, not wishing for any of you, the beloved, to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God's patience is intended to bring the elect into salvation. And so God waits and waits and waits for them to repent. And so God delays ultimate judgment until all of the elect will come in to salvation, will repent and follow Jesus Christ. So the you in the middle of verse 9 is the beloved. So just a general category. The believers ultimately will come and experience salvation. But until then, God is patient toward them. One example of this is the life of Manasseh. Manasseh reigned for 55 years in ancient Israel. He was the most wicked king in all of Israel's history to the present. He offered his sons to Molech. He executed prophets. He filled Jerusalem with their blood, it says, in Second Chronicles and in Second Kings. He filled the Jerusalem temple with various deities, Asherah and Baal. He even built apartments for the cult prostitutes to worship those gods in the temple precinct. He put Isaiah the prophet inside a tree and cut him in half, saw him in half. So this was Manasseh, one of the most evil people in human history. And for 55 years he reigns. Why? Why would God allow such an individual, such a wicked individual, to continue to exist and to reign? Why wouldn't God just judge him? The answer is in Second Chronicles chapter 33, where we see a turning in Manasseh. In verse 10 it says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Verse 12, when he was in distress, he entreated the face of his God, the Lord, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty, which is the word for grace. He asked for grace from God. And he heard his supplication for grace and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. This is Manasseh's repentance. And here's proof of his repentance. In verse 15, he removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, as well as all the altars which he built on the mountains of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside the city. It wasn't safe to walk around the streets of the city. There's idols flying everywhere because Manasseh is throwing them out of the temple. He set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. And he ordered Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. This is his repentance. In other words, God was waiting for Manasseh to repent for decades. 
And yes, such evil individuals can be saved. And there's others like Nebuchadnezzar. So the way we see all this come together is God's patience is toward you, those who are elect, not wishing for any of those elect to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so God is patient, and God will judge. That's the second promise that we see here, prompting us toward godliness, that God is patient toward you. In other words, God's patience by the mockers and the the false teachers in chapter 2 was used to extend their life of ungodliness, their immorality. What Peter is trying to say is God is patient with you so that you would repent and live a life of godliness. Every single sin that we commit, God is patient with us. He doesn't judge us for that sin because it's been forgiven by Jesus Christ on the cross. And if you haven't experienced that forgiveness, it's offered to you tonight through the gospel of Jesus Christ where he says, if you come and you confess your sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive you of every sin. And then you will be called his child, his daughter, his son. And you will spend eternity with him and you will be a part of the new heavens and the new earth as we'll see in a minute. And God is awaiting your repentance so that you can live a life that is holy and godly as we see in verse 11. Until that day, we repent and we confess and the righteous falls seven times and gets up seven times. Our conduct demonstrates that we are his people. As we anticipate his return, which takes us to our third promise, the parousia of the Lord. That's a Greek word. I had to alliterate all peace. The parousia, which means the coming of the Lord. You might have heard that word before being in this church. Greek words get thrown around all the time on this campus. The parousia of the Lord just means the coming of the Lord, which is in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed With intense heat and the earth and its works will be burnt up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by the burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Focusing on judgment and the destruction of the heavens and the earth, verse 11 says, what kind of a person should you be in light of that? You should be characterized by holy conduct and godliness. Do you see how he's making this statement, trying to motivate us towards godliness? All the elements will be destroyed. All the works will be destroyed. In other words, everything physical will be burnt up. All of the works that have been done in all of human history will be destroyed. This is total annihilation. And in response to that, we should live lives of holiness and godliness. Peter pairs behavior with ontology a few times in his letters. In chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. By what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So they are slaves of corruption. That is their ontology. 
they're not saved. And they prove that through their conduct, sensuality, error, and slavery to sin. But in verse 11 of chapter 3, he says, this is your ontology. This is who you are. You are a people of God. You're holy. You're godly. Therefore, show it with your life. First John, chapter 2, it's probably just one page to the right in your Bible. The Apostle John says something similar. In verse 28, he says, Little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not look away in shame at his coming. So the ontology is that you are a little child. You're a child of God. When he comes, there's a moment of reckoning. And he says, so that you would not look away in shame. Look away, you don't make eye contact. You, know, you understand what that's like in human relationships. When you're embarrassed by whatever happened and you can't look somebody in the eye because of shame. That's that moment that he's writing about. So that you do not look away in shame at his coming. This is what you should be thinking about and doing. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So your ontology, your being, is that you are righteous like he is. See how great the love, of, uh, love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. So that is, again, our ontology. We are children of God. And such we are. That's true of us. For this reason, the world doesn't know us because it did not know him. Beloved. Now we are children of God. Again, another statement of fact. This is who you are. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. So there's a different version of us coming. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. There's a future moral transformation, in other words, in verse 2. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. It's the same idea that Peter is presenting. Jesus is coming back. You will see him. You are a child of God. You are changed. You have a new nature. In order not to be ashamed in that moment when you meet him face to face for the very first time, you have to have this hope fixed on him. And the proof of this hope is that you purify yourself just as he is pure. You pursue a life of holy conduct and godliness. That's what Peter is saying. That is our future. And so in verse 12, he says, looking for and hastening the coming day of God. We're anticipating it, eagerly awaiting it. So we're looking for him and hastening the coming day of God. It's to yearn for something. It's actually the imagery of somebody who's walking really fast. He needs to get to his destination. I remember when I was working in finance in downtown LA, there was a partner who was really tall. And I'm only 5'8 here, but, you know, he was like 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, and I was working with him. And every single time we would walk down the stairs, he was always in a hurry. And so he would walk sideways just to get there faster. I could not keep up with him. And he was skipping steps as he was going down the stairs. He was always in a hurry. And I was trying to barely keep up with him a foot shorter than him. That's the imagery here. Somebody who's in a hurry. In other words, we as believers are trying to anticipate, hurry the day of the Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. That's the idea here. And I know those of you who are believers and who are frustrated with fighting your sin 
In pursuit of a godly life, you want Jesus to come back because you know 1 John 2, 28 through 3, 3 is going to be realized. And you believe that promise and you want that promise to be applied to you as soon as possible. And so you're praying for it and you're anticipating it. Peter is saying, don't get distracted from that. Continue to anticipate the day of the Lord, the coming of Jesus Christ, the parousia of Christ. Now, that day comes with judgment. The day of God in verse 12. Everything will be destroyed, which we already talked about. That's the minor prophets significantly focus on this future destruction. And we do so. We pursue the godly life. Fourthly, because of the presence with the Lord. There's a fourth promise. We will be with the Lord. Verse 13 says, according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. That word diligence is coming back again. We saw it multiple times in chapter 1. We saw it in chapter 2. And now it's here, it's back. Be diligent to be spotless and blameless. Beloved, again, an affirmation of your identity as a believer. Peter's picking up the language of new heavens and the new earth from Isaiah 65. Verse 17 says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. The apostle John in chapter 21 of Revelation will focus on the new heaven and the new earth. No more tears, no more dying, no more pain, no more sorrow. Everything is made new. There are other first century writings that are not in our Bibles that had the same expectation. One author says, the first heaven shall depart and pass away. A new heaven will appear. And all the powers of the heavens will give sevenfold light. That's in First Enoch. This idea of anticipating the coming day of God, judgment day, and recreation, the new heaven, the new earth, wasn't just present here. People were talking about it, writing about it, anticipating it. Do you anticipate that moment? And the reason we want to be there is because of verse 13, where righteousness dwells. First John 2 talked about being righteous as he is righteous. So we're heading into this new heaven and new earth characterized by righteousness. That's Peter's promise. You will be present there. Revelation 21 verse 27 says, nothing unclean will enter the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus is coming back, and so we pursue righteousness and holiness. And we want to be found in him blameless and spotless. Those are the four promises that Peter uses to encourage us to live a life that is godly. The punishment from the Lord is certain. The patience of the Lord is extended to us. The parousia of the Lord is certain, and it's coming with judgment and, the, and finally, the presence of the Lord is where righteousness dwells and we dwell with him. And as Peter wraps it up in the final few verses, in verses 15 through 18, he gives us four responses to these promises. Four commands. All of them are commands. The first one is put in a very urgent manner. And the first command is diligently pursue godliness. Be diligent, that's the command, verse 14. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. 
He's called them to be godly in chapter 1, verse 5, in verse 10, and now here again. And he intentionally puts this command in a different voice, a different tense, in order to stress the urgency. That zeal, intensity, effort, pain, and earnestness needs to characterize this diligence. Because the next three commands are in the present tense. So when you have four side by side, and the first one is a different tense, the past tense you could say, he says, watch out for yourself. Make sure that your life is spotless, blameless, characterized by peace when Jesus comes back. Oftentimes in the New Testament, peace and holiness are paired together. Hebrews 12, verse 14 says this, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. Peace and sanctification are paired. Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is characterized by righteousness and peace. This is the Christian life. It's a life of being a peacemaker. But the pair of blamelessness and spotlessness, as we see in verse 14, also appears a few times. In Peter, it appears three times. In chapter 2, in verse 13, he characterized the ungodly as stains and blemishes, the same terms. They're stains and blemishes. They're not spotless, and they're not blameless, but the language is the same in the Greek. So you can either be a stain and a blemish, or you can be spotless and blameless, but there's only one other use of the same pair. In chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 19, we have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So he uses despair to characterize Jesus, spotless and blameless. The negative of that is the ungodly, and he's calling us to the same quality of life, spotlessness and blamelessness. How do we do this? How do we actually aspire to being like Jesus Christ, to be found by him in that moment as spotless and blameless? And I think the answer comes in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, verse 4, describing the faithful, the 144,000 who follow and testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what it says about them. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women. They've kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. If we follow the lamb wherever he goes and he is spotless and blameless, that journey will produce a Christian life that is spotless and blameless. That's Peter's call to all of us. Diligently pursue godliness that's characterized by spotlessness and blamelessness. The second command is in verse 15. Regard or consider the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as some also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. As also in all of his letters, speaking to them, or rather speaking in them, of these things. In which some things are hard to understand. Which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. So what Peter is doing here says... The second command, this is a continual command, consider the patience of the Lord as salvation. In other words, God is waiting for you to repent, ultimately leading you to final salvation. 
Paul wrote about that. Now, I didn't understand everything that Paul said. That's what Peter is confessing here. And remember Peter, he always had an answer for everything. But here he admits, Paul is at the next level. It's like Abner Chow, next level. If you try to, one thing, well, the first problem is keep up with him when he talks. The second one is understand what he's saying. Paul was at a different level, and Peter didn't understand everything. And I'm convinced that Peter and Paul are in prison together. Peter's last letter is 2 Peter. Paul's last letter is 2 Timothy. And just listen to the overlapping themes in both of those books. They both write to Christians in Asia Minor. That's where Timothy is at. He's in Ephesus, the same place where the recipients of 2 Peter are. Both of them, multiple times, remind their readers of information that they had previously known. 2 Timothy 1, 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 3 talks about that. Remember, remember, remember. Both of them speak on godliness and ungodliness in those letters. Both of them use the word master for Jesus in only those two letters. Nowhere else. In the context that we're speaking of. In the context of the clean life. Both of them warn about the evil men who will come in the future. The mockers. The false teachers. Both of them write about those who deny the return of the Lord. Both of them speak multiple times, guard yourself. Be careful. Be aware. So it seems that Peter and Paul were conversing in prison, being, being there held together at the same time. And when they write their final letters, one to Timothy, one to the churches in that same area, they're addressing the same issues. I'm convinced Peter died first because in 2 Timothy 4.11 it says, only Luke is with me when Paul writes. So if Peter was with him, he's been executed by that point. Which is why Paul says, bring Mark. I need him for ministry. Now, Mark was attached to Peter after he defected on Paul. Remember that in Acts? For the rest of his ministry career, he spent time with with the apostle Peter. We see that from 1 Peter 5.13. Peter's gone. uh, Mark is a free agent. Paul wants him. He claims him now that Peter's away. And so Peter's gone. Paul is still alive for a few more months. Two men, two ministry partners at the end of their life in the same prison cell giving us the same warning. Pursue godliness because Jesus is coming back. And even if you don't understand everything in Scripture, Peter says, I don't, he confesses, you are still to pursue godliness so that you don't twist and distort. That's verse 16. Like the people who are false teachers. They do the rest of scriptures, which here is an affirmation that Paul's writings are scripture. Well, that takes us to our third command as we get close to the end, and that is guard your spiritual stability. Guard your spiritual stability, and that's verse 17. Beloved, you therefore, knowing this ahead of time, be on your guard, that's the command, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall away from your stability. Peter uses the word for a military guard, a prison guard, when he says guard. He might be looking at a guard next to him who's supposed to keep him not not, not running away from this prison. And he says, that is how you are to guard your spiritual stability. As if you are in prison. You're imprisoning it. You're protecting it from all attacks on the outside. It's ironic that he would use a prison term to talk about our Christian life. Protect yourself. 
And Peter is all about stability. He ends First Peter chapter 5 in the same way. God will stabilize your faith. He gets that idea from the conversations with Jesus. In Luke 9.51, it says, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem to the cross. Using the same terminology. He was resolved. He was stable in his purpose and in his commitment to go to the cross. Was it easy for Jesus? I don't think so. Because John 12, 27 says, my soul is troubled. It's a word that actually means an earthquake took place. My soul is shaken. But what am I going to say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I came. Jesus understood why he came to save sinners from their sins. And yes, it was difficult for him to embrace the cross. And he wept loud tears according to Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 in the garden of Gethsemane. But when he was resolved, he was truly unshakable. Such that, that when he met the soldiers, the Roman soldiers in the garden of Gethsemane and asked them, he initiates the conversation with them. Who are you looking for? Jesus is no longer on the ground weeping and, and wailing. He's standing up. He's approaching his uh, arresting officers and says, who, do you, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And they fall to the ground. That's the resolve we're talking about. The same terminology is used of Jesus' resolve as Peter is saying, this is the kind of life you are to live. Be that resolved. Such a commitment to go to the cross that the people are shocked and the Roman soldiers would not fall down for anybody. And now they're on the ground before Jesus because of his commitment to go to the cross. And shortly before that, Jesus tells Peter, you need to strengthen the brothers. You need to make sure you help them in their life of stability, using the same vocabulary. And so Peter says, I'm going to keep reminding you to make sure that your Christian life is stable. How do we do this? The final command, verse 18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever, both now and into eternity. Amen. Growth is measurable. It's visible. In other words, for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, it should be evident that we're growing. That we're becoming rooted deeper and deeper into who Christ is. Our relationship is becoming more and more visible to other people that we are intimate with Christ. We love him. That we follow him. That we obey him. That we treasure him. Because he's the source of all wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.3 says. And so we come to him as we grow in that knowledge. And this is one of the few places in the New Testament where a doxology is offered to Jesus. To him. Most of the time it's to the Father. But now to him, to Jesus, be the glory both now and today and to eternity. Amen. This is Peter's invitation. And command. The final words are four commands. Live a godly life. Even if you're fleeing for your safety. Even if it's difficult. Even if there are people around you who are trying to seduce you away from the truth. Make sure you're stable in that truth. Because you know Jesus is coming back. And he will judge the ungodly. 
He will burn this creation and make a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells, and that is where we belong. And let the words of the Puritan prayer motivate you to this end. O Son of God and Son of Man, Thou were incarnate. You suffered and you rose and you ascended for my sake. Your departure was not a token of separation, but a pledge of return. Your word, promises, sacraments show thy death until thou come again. That day is no horror to me, for thy death has redeemed me. Thy spirit fills me. Thy love animates me. Thy word governs me. I have trusted thee, and thou hast not betrayed my trust. I have waited for thee and not waited in vain. Thou will come to raise my body from the dust and reunite it with my soul by a wonderful work of infinite power and love. You keep the stars in their courses and give life to all creatures. This corruptible will put on incorruption. This mortal, immortality. This natural body, a spiritual body. This dishonored body, a glorious body. This weak body, a body of power. I triumph now in your promises as I will do in their performance. Beyond the grave is resurrection, judgment, acquittal, dominion. Every event and circumstance of my life will be dealt with. The sins of my youth, my secret sins, the sins of abusing you, of disobeying your word, the sins of neglecting ministers' admonitions, the sins of violating my conscience, all will be judged. And after judgment, peace and rest, life and service, employment and enjoyment for your elect. Oh God, keep me in this faith and ever looking for Christ's return. That's the motivation. We are moving toward the new heaven and the new earth where only righteousness dwells. Let's pursue that life of righteousness faithfully. Lord God, we thank you for the promises that you've given us in Scripture. Those who are yours will persevere to the end. You will finish the work of conforming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Until then, we ask you to forgive us of our sins and our failures, of the ungodly actions that we commit. I pray for those who are not yours just yet, that the Holy Spirit would impress the truth of your word onto their minds and onto their hearts, resurrect them from their spiritual death, bring them to life, and lead them on the life of righteousness. We pray this to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.